Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is American Hodel, Bitcoiner, Twitter personality, and clubhouse addict. He's also been in the film and entertainment industry for a long time. We'll talk about where entertainment went wrong, why Hollywood produces sequel after sequel, and what the economic incentives are. Hoddle also argues that entertainment will become better under a Bitcoin standard. Hoddle is hilarious. If you've ever been on Clubhouse, you can see how much he enjoys talking and instigating. You wouldn't know it, but he's quite the accomplished marketer and entertainer. I enjoyed talking to him about all the entertainment mediums and how Bitcoin fixes so many of the ills around entertainment. I hope you enjoy it as well. American Hoddle, how's everything going, man? What's up, brother? Hey, so I lost that bet to you, basically. (laughs) (laughs) What you got? So you still got like 30 something hours, right? To get it. For anybody who doesn't know, me and Jimmy were talking trash on Clubhouse and I bet him a fancy steak dinner that the Bitcoin price would hit 100K by May 1st. And, you know, I have a gut feeling that we're just not going to quite make it. I still have 30 hours left, but I don't think it's gonna, it's going to happen. So <laughs> I hope I hope you have your eating pants on because I'm definitely buying you a steak in Miami. Yeah. And not just any steak. This is no, we're going Wagyu. Wagyu, Wagyu right. A5, right? This is like some of the best Wagyu that you can absolutely get. So, yeah, very much looking forward to it. No, no this is going to be like literally I owe you like a thousand dollar steak. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I think the ones that we were looking at were like a hundred something dollars for like 10 ounces. I figure like 24 ounces, you know, that's about, you know, all I can stomach of that stuff. And I think it'll be really fun. And we'll I had some uh, other people there. I, based on nothing, because I don't look mm-hmm. at indicators except for on Twitter, I had just felt like we were in more of a 2013 style run up. And I think now with this long consolidation period, it seems more like a 2017 style run up to me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> my theory was wrong and now I must pay the price. Your technical analysis fails you. <laughs> TA, wait, are you saying TA doesn't work? Who would have known? Who could have guessed? <laughs> Sometimes it does. It's kind of hard to tell. But anyway, let's get into what we wanted to talk about. I know that you used to be in the entertainment industry. I think you're happily Bitcoin retired at this point. But could you tell our audience like what you used to do and like you know, as as for a living and just sort of go over that. Yeah, totally. So uh, I went to film school in the late 2000s, the late aughts, got out in 2012. And then I, uh, you know, the dream was to be like a Steven Spielberg or a Martin Scorsese and, you know, do traditional style films. Like a lot of people, you get out of film school, you discover there's no jobs for you. Nobody wants to give you a job to be a filmmaker. So you end up doing commercial work, like, you know, commercial campaigns, music videos, stuff like that. And then over time, like around 2015, that sort of transitioned into me doing YouTubers because YouTube became the big thing. So I was running a lot of social channels, doing marketing, all sorts of stuff that just was not the thing that I actually fell in love with, which was, uh, you know, making movies. Mm. And what made you want to get into movie making? Like, uh, did you watch a lot of movies growing up? And was that something that you just really wanted to do? Totally. Yeah, I think like, you know, I was basically raised by the television because, <laughs> you know, like constant neglect in childhood. It was just like either go outside and leave me alone or watch television and leave me alone. And the 90s when I was a kid, I mean, were, were like peaks in my opinion. There were so many great films 
coming out in the 90s, if you compare and contrast the films from, let's say, like 1985-ish through 2005, that's a really amazing run of quality in entertainment in Hollywood that, you know, now it's just Hollywood's sort of been bombed out. Like the incentive model doesn't work anymore. It seems to be that they're making more and more woke films that regular people don't want to watch, have no interest in watching. Like, for instance, the Oscars was like two nights ago and viewership was at a historic low. I think it was 9.9 million in the early 2000s, 50 million Americans watched and now 10 million Americans watch. Right. So it's like, it's just a totally different industry than when I went into it. But yeah, I fell in love with, you know, the movies that we all love, right? Like Jurassic Park and The Matrix and Back to the Future and all the good stuff, you know? Mm. And now it's all just like Superhero X Part 5 or something like that. It's either pure spectacle because that sells to international markets, right? Like you can do Iron Man in every language around the world. (laughs) Or it's these prestige films that are usually about, you know minority struggles or trans stuff or gay LGBTQ stuff or, you know, just all sorts of things that are, you know, they play to sort of like the faculty lounge on like elite (laughs) campuses, but like regular people just want to go to regular people just want to go to the movies and see a big dinosaur chase people, basically, (laughs) you know, which is (laughs) the entertaining stuff. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So what happened? Why has, you know, cinema, I guess, gone from something that was really awesome and what you said was like an amazing run from, you know, the early 90s to the early 2000s to the sort of the crap that we have now? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously cultural incentives like, you know, 1971 happened and then, you know, we go off the gold standard and then, you know, culture rolls downhill for monetary policy like we always talk about. But more specifically to the movie industry, I mean, this is an industry that is being dematerialized by the Internet and the forms of content that people create. Right. It used to be they had a relative monopoly on long form content or high level content. And that's not true anymore. There are a lot of content creators that are putting out really good, really engaging stuff like a podcast like this, like we're doing, takes up a lot of time for people. It's free to listen to. It's often more engaging than something, you know, like a big dinosaur chasing somebody. Right. (laughs) And and so, you know, and the at home experience is so amazing for people. Like I built myself a home theater during the pandemic. And I don't know when the last time you ever looked into anything like this was, but you can get a 4k projector now for about $1,600. You can get a Mm. sound system for about a thousand dollars and a screen for 500 bucks. So, you know, you're all in an amazing home theater experience for under $4,000 these days. And, you know, people have flat screen televisions and Netflix and all. There are many avenues that have dematerialized uh, the distribution of content. Hollywood is still trying to hang on to their monopoly, but the only thing they have a monopoly on anymore is these big tentpole pictures, you know, the superhero stuff, basically. Mm, Yeah, which costs a lot of money to make. So that's something I want to get into. What are the economics of this industry? Because like, one of the funniest lines I think I heard a long time ago was, you know who the most creative people in Hollywood are? It's the accountants. And they say that because, you know, like they do all sorts of financial shenanigans so that even the most successful movies somehow lose money. So can you talk about that a little bit? What's the money side of all this? Oh, my God, man. I want to tell you about this film I worked on when I was 
coming out of film school, just making my way into the industry. And I worked as a gaffer on this film, which meant I was in charge of the lighting of this film. It was called Pop Star Puppy. And it was being financed by uh, this Chinese syndicate. And it was just such a terrible movie. Every day I would go to this movie and think, what is this? Who wrote this script? Like a fifth grader. And now looking back on it, knowing what I know about economics, it was so clear that this was capital flight from China. Mm. You know, mm. <laughs> they, they were trying to <laughs> evade currency controls. It's just amazing. But yeah, I mean, I think the the model now is that they're, you know, in the 90s, I was talking about there was all this great run of production, right? Like you had a movie like The Matrix, which was a hard R-rated movie with some pretty heady scientific ideals. I think the budget for that was $60 million, right? Mm. And, you know, you just can't make a movie like that anymore because nowadays when you go see one of these, you know, Iron Man spectacle type movies, you are seeing basically a million dollars a minute play out on screen. I mean, they spend two mm. to $300 million on these pictures and they expect to get them back via international distribution, right? And so you just have this fundamental dynamic where there's no place in the market for small independent movies or movies that are made by what we call in cinema the auteur or the mm. author, you know, basically a director mm. who has a singular vision who can put out... And those are the films that we all end up liking, right? Like the guys like... You know, for one example of somebody who's working today would be Chris Nolan, I think is a true auteur or uh, Quentin Tarantino is a true auteur. And so there's a little bit of space for guys like them in the movie industry, but not a lot anymore because it's all these big pictures, you know, like the fundamentally just the economics of how few people are going to the movie theater don't lend themselves to people making daring, interesting films that are, you know, medium budget. And why does it cost so much? You just mentioned before that it's like a million dollars per minute. I mean, you figure like even if you CG everything, how does it cost a million dollars a minute? You figure you get a few kids from art school, you know, pay them for like an entire year. They could probably come up with at least a minute and that wouldn't cost anywhere near a million dollars. No, right. I mean... There are a lot of filmmakers that don't agree that movies should be this expensive. You know, you're in Austin. Somebody I really admire is Richard Linklater, who's been making films in Austin for a long time. And he makes his films always usually on a low budget. And he's very scrappy. Like, I think his first film, Slacker, which was made in the Austin area, I think they spent $50,000 on that, right? Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. It's a great movie. You didn't need a lot of money to make it. But the thing is, you know, everybody's got to get paid on a film right like mm. you got the production department and the hair and makeup girls and you know the cgi and the cgi is a big component because every single frame of these movies have been touched by a cgi team and so that's where the bulk of your costs come like i'd say probably 40 or 50 percent of the budget of a film nowadays is cgi and then we have in filmmaking we call it you know above the line cost and below the line cost so Above the line is the actor, you're paying $20 million to be the lead of your movie. And then below the line is, you know, the guy who's doing the lighting or the camera work or and so usually the actual cost of making a movie is all below the line. And it's, you know, relatively, I would say it's fairly cheap, you know, on a relative basis, but then it's the above the line costs that get you right? How much am I going to spend on X actor, X director? How much am I going to spend on, you know, this expensive fight sequence, stuff like that? Oh, wow. So it sounds like they've invested a lot into each frame. But why do they need to do that? Like, it feels like, I don't know, like, do audiences really, can they tell the difference between a million dollars in a one minute shot versus, you know, 300,000? Like, why is it getting that expensive? 
I think it's all just about trying to create spectacle or what, you know, in the industry is called popcorn moments. A popcorn moment is a moment where the audience gasp and popcorn flies in the air, right? It's like mm. one of these great cinema moments. It's, you know, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park would be like an mm. example of a popcorn moment, right? Or mm. like the jaws popping out of the water, stuff like that. Mm. And so you want to get all these great moments in the trailers so that you can get people's butts in the seats at the theater because you're now competing with so many different content platforms like, you know, podcasting, for instance, or YouTube. I mean, talk to somebody who's under 25 and it's just 100% YouTube all the time, right? That's all that they're interested in. And so, you know, you just want to get people there, get them in the seats. And really, it's about spectacle more than anything. Mm. So, I mean, that seems to be the market that a lot of movies are sort of cornering, but it's strange because like the movies that I remember, right? Like it's, you know, the last scene of like Usual Suspects or something like that, where you find out, oh man, that was Kaiser Soze, you know, something like that. Yeah. Like they don't need spectacle, right? You get that popcorn moment without necessarily spending a million dollars a minute on like one particular thing. Is it the international distribution thing? What's causing them to spend that much money? A lot of it is international distribution, Mm. right? Because, you know, it's a lot easier to make a film where Iron Man flies around because that's cross-cultural. Everybody understands Mm. that, right? Mm. Whereas the dynamics of a police investigation, let's say, in The Usual Suspects, you know, that maybe doesn't cross cultures, right? Like Mm. somebody in Nigeria would be watching it thinking, why isn't there more corruption in this? There should be more corruption. (laughs) That would make more sense. So yeah, they want to make the films as broad and as bland and as applicable to the global market as humanly possible to generate the biggest ROI. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned that you were, you know, working on some of these other platforms like YouTube and, you know, doing music videos and things like that. How are those, the economics of those funded and all that? Yeah. Yeah. So instead of like, you know, having one big hose basically that funnels into the trough, it's like a lot of small dripping hoses. So usually like one of these YouTube influencer types, let's say they'll be making you know, some dollar figure based on subscriptions, they'll be making some dollar figure based on in person stuff, live stuff, like going and giving talks, doing live podcasts, appearances, etc. They'll be making a pretty meager amount of money usually from the actual YouTube advertising or Facebook advertising or Instagram advertising, whatever that is. And then they'll be making an amount of money on merch. And so mm-hmm. you combine all of those things together And actually, you can make a pretty damn good living on YouTube. I mean, I worked with a lot of influencers who had a couple million followers and were able to basically monetize dollar per dollar, meaning they were able to get a couple million dollars in revenue coming in every year. And the costs to operate something like that are very low. But you're playing this, you're basically playing this game of eyeballs. You know, you're just trying Mm -hmm. to grab attention. So you're being sensationalist and trying to see how you can get the most you know, basically, it's why, you know, YouTube nowadays is full of all these like kids in LA who are causing drama with each other. I mean, this sort of weird pseudo reality thing where there's a bunch, they all have their own curated channels where it's like, man, can you believe that this person said this thing about that person? And then there's a video that's a reaction to that video. And it's good business for everybody. Uh, And they all live out in LA. And everybody's obviously very good looking and everything. And these if you look these videos up, like Jake Paul is one or Logan Mm -hmm. Paul, all those kind of guys, they have millions and millions and millions of views. I mean, just a crazy amount of views because people are addicted to the watching this attention seeking behavior play out. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's your business is just to, you know, get attention for yourself in whatever way you can, positive or negative.
Hmm. And is that because like the people that are watching essentially watch for free <laughs> whereas yes. with the movie? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there, it's totally free to watch. So, you know, you just go to whatever is the most primitive, basically, like the most appealing to your base level instincts. Right. Hmm. It's why Instagram is mainly pictures of girls butts. You know, (laughs) (laughs) because that also is free in a sense. uh, The consumers are the product and, you know, the real consumer or the real customers in this case are the advertisers or something to that effect, it seems. Yeah, totally. And so this is where uh, cancel culture comes from, right? Because Mm. it's very easy if you don't like the behavior of somebody to shut off their, you know, advertiser stream because advertisers Mm. are very thin skinned and Mm. they're very fickle, right? Mm. So let's say you don't like the political position somebody has taken or you don't like a comment they made or you think they're a racist or whatever, right? You just start a campaign where you go after them on social media and uh, you start tagging their sponsors or their advertisers and you say, this person did this, they're a bad person. And, you know, whatever your actual motives for that attack are, It's a very effective asymmetric warfare, sort of social media guerrilla warfare thing that happens nowadays because of the advertising model. If people had more of a direct financial relationship with the content creators, they wouldn't be so quick to cancel, you know? Well, that kind of brings it back to the whole movie thing again, because what you seem to be saying is that if the consumer were the ones that were paying, then you can actually have higher quality content, but yet... Even movies seem to be going in this sort of like very base level, sort of like primitive entertainment rather than something more nuanced or interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's really crazy. Like we're we're, (laughs) I think I it's I you know, I haven't I haven't figured out what to make of it, because at the same time that it seems like the human attention span is shortening and people are looking for more of this, you know, sort of base level content. At the same time, you have stuff like this, which is or, you know, stuff that's a lot better than this, where like Jordan Peterson does a lecture for eight hours on YouTube and people listen to the entire thing. So I I can't quite, you know, I can't like figure out what (laughs) what how people can the duality of those two positions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting because like in a sense, movies are appealing very wide. But, you know, it doesn't go very deep. But then there are these really deep things that people will just get sucked into. But maybe it's not as wide. And that seems to be a lot of what's on YouTube, maybe. Or I don't know, maybe it is like very wide there as well. I don't know. What's your sense of sort of like the distribution of content and the amount of attention people pay to it? Are they very polarized or what? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, right. And this word content is this new this new word that sort of flattens the entire environment for everything. We used to really demarcate between, you know, movies, you know, you had the small screen with television and, you know, you had the silver screen and all that kind of stuff and all these different demarcations. And, you know, nowadays it's kind of like gone with the wind and some girls YouTube are just pieces of content to be streamed to your smartphone. Right. And so there's this flattening that happens this sort of fat tail, I guess, if you will. <laughs> it's mm. it's really, yeah, it's really interesting. I haven't sort of figured it out entirely what it means, you know, like where we're at. Like I can tell you that the, not having the financial relationship between, you know, the producers of the content and the consumers of the content is creating a bunch of perverse incentives and you're getting worse, worse stuff because of that. And then also because of the advertiser-based model, you have this sort of cancel culture thing, which is making everybody scared. And, you know, art depends on 
people being brave truth tellers, really. If people are scared of getting canceled socially for something that they think or speak artistically, you're going to end up with basically a bunch of, you know, milk toast, very bland, boring pieces of art, which is kind of what we're seeing, you know, in the landscape today. Yeah, uh, very boring to some degree. I mean, I stopped watching TV like a few years ago and I don't really feel like I've missed much. It's kind of crazy. No, no, you haven't. Yeah, I myself am a person who has a home theater. You know, I've always kept a really large movie collection. Been at, like, you know, I devoted a portion of my life to this at one point. I don't watch that many movies anymore either because, you know, I don't find them very interesting or entertaining. Often, you know, there's sort of this commodification of movies now, too. They, they've sort of become like songs in some respect where, you know, the art form lasted about 100 years. And now we're doing this sort of recycling of content. Like if you watch something like Stranger Things on Netflix that I don't know, which I don't know if you've seen. Maybe you haven't. Maybe I haven't. Your, maybe, your, <laughs> maybe your kids watched it. It's just a recycling of all of the like Stephen King sort of tropes from movies that we're familiar with from the 80s. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Nobody's breaking ground anymore. Nobody's really doing any interesting things. Whereas it didn't used to feel like that for the first hundred years of cinema's history. It really felt like people were breaking new ground continually. And yeah, we just don't have a lot of innovation in film anymore. Yeah, it seems like everyone wants to play safe. And does the money have something to do with that? There's this quote by Orson Welles, which is basically like, being a filmmaker is a terrible way to go through life because you spend one year of your life making the picture and then, you know, four years of your life talking to the finance guys, basically. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so there has always been this like sort of tastemaker thing where the people with the money who hold the purse strings, you know, they have sway over the type of content that gets made. But it used to be back in the day when you had a more sort of maybe vertically integrated or monopolistic version of Hollywood, you had a guy at the top like a Louis B. Mayer or somebody And you would come to him and say, here's the thing, Louis, I have an idea for, you know, a picture about the Civil War. I want to do a picture about the Civil War. And he goes, ah, I think it's a great idea, right? People love the Civil War. Now's the time. Strike while the iron's hot. Here's the money, kid. Go make the picture. And then they would basically just leave you alone, right? Nowadays, movies are, you know, tested and commodified and, you know, committees get involved. And there are all these showings and you have to do recuts as a filmmaker and you really get away from the that singular vision that we used to have when you had sort of more, actually more monopolistic control. When there was more monopolistic control, there were better movies being made. Now that movies get made by a committee, uh, it, you know, they become just very bland and flat and boring and non-offensive. And, you know, none of that makes great cinema. Remember back in the day, you used to walk out of a movie sometime and just go, God, I hated that movie. I hated mm-hmm. that movie, right? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you kind of walk out of a movie and you just go, eh. It was okay. <laughs> There's nothing offensive in it, in other words. Well, nobody's taking any chances, right? Mm. No, nobody's trying anything new. What you were reacting to when you saw a terrible movie was somebody trying something new that didn't work. And what you were reacting to when you saw a great movie was somebody trying something new that did work, right? Mm. And so now that everybody's afraid and these movies are being made by committee, you're basically just watching something that's very flat and boring and non-offensive. And it looks like a movie. It sounds like a movie, but you're not getting the same feeling that a great movie should give you. It sounds like these committees are there to reduce risks somehow. Is that what's happening? Yeah, very much so. And they're trying to make, you know, they're trying to manufacture hits, which is, I mean, this has been a thing in Hollywood for a long time, too. They've always been trying to manufacture hits and make sure they had something that the public was going to like. And, you know, the whole process is kind of BS. I mean, how many stories have you heard 
we're coming out of Hollywood where it's like, you know, we didn't think the movie was going to be much. And then it turned into this worldwide phenomenon. And it's because the people in the committees just straight up don't know. And they mm-hmm. pretend like they do know. And, you know, people like myself who are uh, actual filmmakers really resent these people because we're like, listen, you don't know what it takes to actually execute and make a film. And, you know, you just need to give us sway. I think this is why Netflix has been pretty popular in the Hollywood community is because they tend to just write checks and then let people do what they want to do. <laughs> There's a whole like business dynamic thing about Netflix's uh, economics. Like they're a total zombie company who doesn't make any revenue, right? But like in terms of like the creatives, the creatives are pretty happy over at Netflix. Yeah. So tell me more about that. What's going on with Netflix? Because we know that their stock's pretty high and, you know, they've been many, uh, or at least they've been flying high for a while, but you call it a zombie company. Tell me more. Right. Well, because they have no profits, right? And they have Mm -hmm. no plans to make any profits. (laughs) And the problem with Netflix is they can't compete with something like YouTube because, you know, there's like I said, there's all these like kids out in L.A. who are creating drama with each other and sucking up the time and attention and eyeballs of potential Netflix viewership for free. Whereas Netflix has to go out and spend, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars on these projects and then times that by a hundred and by a thousand and then times that by the amount of cultures that they're trying to make projects for and then the content that they have to buy or license from other studios. They have a lot, they have a high cost in order to create this long form content. Whereas the guys like us who are creating long form content right now, like we've been talking for about 30 minutes, this is a zero cost activity. And so Netflix has to create, has to compete with basically all of the free options in the market. And there's only so many people who are going to buy a $14 subscription. So I think the plan is with all of these sort of, you know, Disney Plus, Netflix, Paramount has a service now, Hulu, whatever it is. At some point, they're all going to have to merge. You know, they're just jockeying for position about who is going to acquire who. And then, you know, you'll have one or maybe two entities that you pay a subscription fee to. And they do basically all of the long form content. And they just completely dematerialize Hollywood. And you basically never go to a movie theater anymore. In fact, movie theaters might be totally dead in the next 10 to 15 years. Well, they've been dead for like the last year. Like, right. (laughs) No one's got to them. I mean, are you aware of what, you know, how that's affected the industry, if at all? Well, it's been, yeah, it's been terrible, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Because you need people go, you need people going to the movies, and then you also had the double whammy of you know the COVID restrictions made it very hard for people to make films to make new content. Hollywood has basically figured out their faux protocols around that now mm-hmm. at this point, so they're actually making content now. But yeah, they had to shelve a lot of stuff, and it really wreaked havoc on the industry. For instance, you know, Mark Cuban has a heavy stake in that industry, and uh, that was pretty bad for his top line cash flow. At you know, in 2020, maybe that's why he's gotten into Dogecoin as of late. <laughs> maybe. All right, so let's go back to this committee thing because the decision by committee to reduce risk sounds very much like something else we know. That's the Federal Reserve Board, right? They reduce risk on a lot of other things. Has film essentially become more fiat as a result of you know all these people trying to de-risk it? Yeah, I would definitely say that film is more fiat like literally meaning by decree. I mean, there is a high committee that's sitting there on all of these films, basically telling the underlings who are executing the vision of the film what they want to see, stress testing it, getting critical feedback from audiences, recutting it. So yeah, it's totally by decree, 100%. And you know, when you get something that's by committee, it ends up being, like I said, it's a product for nobody, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
it, nobody actually wants that product. I don't know if I can relate the industry like, you know, this is one of those problems that like I have too much specific knowledge about the industry to like fully relate it to fiat from like a macro standpoint, because I'm too like, I think this gets this happens a lot. Like I hear this with, you know, Eric Weinstein when he'll start talking about gauge theory or <laughs> his his whole stuff about physics, right? He doesn't want to accept because this is an area I have expertise. in. so like, it's funny because I'm watching my own cognitive biases here. And when you tell me like, oh, it's a fiat thing, I want to go, no, it's because of this factor and this factor and this factor. And I don't want to accept the simple conclusion that maybe the money has really just caused this. Mm. And I think that's probably the more likely, you know, conclusion that this was caused by fiat currency. Mm. Well, so it is interesting that you bring all of this up because, you know, while movies have gone down, at least between, I don't know, like mid 2005 to, I don't know, maybe, maybe even now, a lot of TV has changed in form and content and there are kind of the equivalent of eight-hour podcasts sort of like in serial form that have been produced. Like, do you think the creativity is going more to something that's a little more decentralized like TV? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Like, definitely long form is a big thing. I mean, Game of Thrones was like, I think, the most popular entertainment product of the last decade, which is, I think, if you look at it in some total, it's like a 60 or 70-hour series right? So clearly people have a tremendous desire for this long form content. And yeah, definitely. I think there is a bit of decentralization would be hard to say, because like I said, you know, there is still quite monopolistic control on what gets created and how it gets created. You know, in the early days of YouTube, we sort of had this vision that YouTube was going to be a distribution platform for independent filmmakers. And it turns out that people don't want to watch an hour and a half long movie on YouTube. They want to watch something that's five minutes, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, on Instagram, it's even shorter. And then you got what Snapchat, even shorter. And then what's the new one? TikTok, even shorter, right? (laughs) And so, yeah, the medium sort of is the message, which is a Marshall McLuhan thing, like the medium that you're working in the distribution medium, it really matters. And I think one of the things that we've lost that I really regret is as a, you know, part of the auteur experience, uh, you know, the director having this singular vision and putting you through the paces of the experience of that vision to reach the conclusion, like at the end of the movie, when you find out that Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Sose, right? You know, part of it was having the control of the theater. The theater is a controlled environment. You're locked there in the dark for three hours or two hours or whatever it is, and you're not going anywhere, maybe to get up and pee or go get, you know, jujubes from <laughs> the concessions there, right? But basically, essentially, you're locked in there. And now when people are watching, you know, Netflix or whatever, oftentimes they're also scrolling their phone, they're doing other things, they're, you know, their attention is di- diverted now. So I wonder if, if that is part of it too, that we can't have the same curated set of experiences that we used to have. Mm. And yet there's decent content to be found all over the place, which is kind of this paradox of choice because we can like listen to three hour podcasts like every day if we wanted to and we, we wouldn't run out like ever. So, I mean, in a sense, like there's a hunger for this stuff. And in a in a way, I guess the market is filling it. But why aren't the bigger Well, other than serialized TV, you know, why aren't they filling this demand and at a cheaper cost? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one thing is it's hard to make films, Mm. like right? Like, so it's not, we haven't fully democratized the process of making things. Like, 
things are, I mean, you know, you are seeing a lot of like YouTube content and stuff like that that is being shot on iPhone, but you still have to have a pretty significant knowledge base in order to put something like that together, right? Mm-hmm. The tools have gotten cheaper. You know, when I was first going to film school, Final Cut Pro used to cost like $1,200, I think. And, <laughs> and now I think it costs $200 and it's a lot more accessible. It's a lot easier to work with for people. So there, you know, it is getting easier, but it's still not like, you know, I, I'm going to type something into a computer and an AI is going to go make me a film. I, I think when you see that and it becomes as easy as putting, you know, pen to paper when in creating art, you're going to see a lot more stuff like that. But at the moment, it's still, you know, it still takes a few years minimum to become a decent enough filmmaker that somebody would actually want to watch the stuff you watch. Because let me tell you, Jimmy, when you go to, you know, a student film festival, holy shit, it is painful to watch. It is so painful. (laughs) I had to sit through so many of these films. And, you know, my films were terrible, too. They're all terrible. (laughs) It takes a while to get good. Yeah. I mean, it's such a crazy art form, if you think about it. And like, I imagine the way to get better is to just do many of them and I don't know, is YouTube sort of like the dumping ground for that? What's like? Yeah, totally. When I was a kid in film school, we would just do short films all the time and we would put them up on YouTube. And, you know, most of them were trash and they got, you know, 200 views, probably, I assume, from friends and family who were just checking out what we were doing. But, you know, a couple of times there were some projects that we worked on. And unfortunately, I can't say them. Otherwise, I'm going to dox myself. But Mm -hmm. there were some projects that we worked on that went viral. Mm -hmm. I remember one was a short horror film that we had made that went viral online. I think today it has 10 million views. So it was pretty cool to get like that direct critical feedback, you know, when I was in film school that was like, hey, we made a film, people liked it, and now it has millions of views online. It's awesome. And, you know, you got real time feedback on it and you were able to go back and tweak some of the parts of the film that were, you know, in the comment section, people would be like, I don't know why the footsteps are so loud. Like when he walks in, like what? And then, <laughs> and then you go have a talk with a student who did the sound design. And you're like, hey, bro, do you see these hundred comments that say the footsteps are too loud? Maybe you might want to make them a little softer. You know what I mean? Stuff mm. like that. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm. Well, I mean, does that bode well for the future? Maybe there are like sort of laying dormant lots and lots of like amazing filmmakers where, you know, if they had the opportunity or the right platform or something to that effect, they can create amazing films just like, you know, it's just a matter of time or something. Yeah. What I would like to see from the young filmmakers is more courage, you know, Mm -hmm. not being afraid to make the films that you actually want to make and, you know, not trying to make things that are crowd pleasing. You know, one of the problems with the online stuff is the attention seeking nature of it. So, you know, you're not actually making the thing that you want to make. You're making the thing that's going to appeal to the most people and get the most clicks and get the most eyeballs. And so you everybody ends up sort of making the same kind of thing. And, you know, that was the vision. Like there's this clip of Francis Ford Coppola who directed The Godfather, not Mm. not the Francis uh, Coppola who who you had the debate with recently. That was brutal. I loved it. It was amazing. (laughs) But yeah, he was talking about, you know, the future will be like a pudgy girl in Iowa creating like a masterpiece on a camcorder camera and stuff. And I think people thought that was going to materialize, but it ended up just being a bunch of YouTube content that's pretty lazy and meaningless. Mm. Yeah, there is sort of like, as a content creator, it is much easier to make something convenient than something that is bold. So I wonder about that. Like, are people free to 
create something bold in this sort of environment where attention is almost everything. You know, there's a time preference quality here, right? Because of course they are free to create it. But what's going to happen, and I've d- I know because I've done this, I've, I've put out my projects that were my passion projects online, mm. and they got no views, right? Mm. Nobody cared, nobody was interested. And so, you know, I think young people nowadays, they don't have the persistence to stick with that idea until it finally uh, gains prominence, right? They're much more likely to iterate, like A-B test, hop onto the next trend, and try and get the eyeballs and the clicks and the adoration. Because, you know, it is, by the way, the feeling of going viral online is a pretty amazing feeling when everybody likes the thing that you've done and they're all congratulating you and praising you for it, telling you how great the piece of work you made is. And I've had that happen to me on a few occasions. I've had the opposite happen too, where it went viral in a negative way and people were telling me what a piece of garbage I was. So, you know, the internet cuts both. <laughs> the internet cuts you both. You were the ways. guy that made the Star Wars kid thing, right? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. The, the guys who do the Star Wars movies, like, they get savaged if people don't like the movie. Just at, like uh, Ryan Johns, the guy who did The Last Jedi absolutely savaged online yeah but you know it's this like series of selective pressures that cause you to you know basically chase the thing that is easy and convenient and going to get you the most amount of love this is what robert breedlove would call humans wanting something for nothing right mm. every human is trying to get that trade off where they get something for nothing so if you're a girl on instagram you can post a picture of your butt and 8 million dudes like it and it takes you <laughs> 2 2 seconds to post it Well, that's a behavior that a lot of girls are going to engage in and then they do, you know. Mm. (laughs) Which is kind of sad. So basically you're saying the entertainment that we're seeing now is essentially, you know, attractive girls posting butt pictures. Yes. It's that the Instagram is the most fiat of all the entertainments, I think. Or, you know, I mean, TikTok, I think I don't know how much you know about TikTok, but I don't know how much. Oh, God, it's terrible. As somebody like we both have daughters as somebody Mm. with daughters. It's just, you know, a lot of what is going on on that app is essentially preteen burlesque where these girls are dancing sultrily to different rap songs that, you know, talk about various sexual positions. And you're like, ah, this girl is 12 years old. Like, I really hate seeing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And th- there's a lot of that going on on that app. I think we should. Well, what does it say ground. that that's popular? Right. No, I know. Very popular. Very popular. Well, and here's an interesting thing. Okay, this is a perfect example. TikTok gamifies the 15 minutes of fame thing. So Mm. a user, I don't know how many people know this, but, you know, this is, they're hijacking the reward systems of the adolescent brands that are using their product. When you post a video to TikTok, one of your first videos will get, like, basically they pre-select it to go viral. So it'll be put into, you know, an algorithm and then sent up the chain and suddenly tens of thousands of people will see your video. And what you think is, oh, man, what the thing I did, the little dance I did or the comedy skit I did or the thing I said, people really like that. So I'm going to do more of that. Right. And yeah. And so they're giving they're giving adolescent brains a, a taste of this 15 minutes of fame thing and making them feel like they're famous. And, you know, there are a lot of these TikTok influencers who have ridden that algorithm to actual fame. So sometimes it becomes a real thing. But yeah, it's interesting how it hijacks them. Oh, wow. That's so evil. <laughs> it sounds like... It is. <laughs> oh, and all of these people are getting... Thinking that they're going to be famous or it 
gives them sort of like a false hope or something when it's really like view inflation by TikTok. Yeah. Yep. And when you, yeah, it is view inflation. That's exactly what it is. And when you talk to kids in, you know, elementary schools today, it's very depressing because the number one thing they'll tell you is that they want to be a YouTuber. They don't say astronaut, scientist, president, firefighter anymore. They say YouTuber. They want to be famous. They want to do something for nothing. And that's what they all want. We have lost our enterprising spirit in American life. And it's sad, you know. Well, that might be a good segue to talking about how Bitcoin changes some of this stuff. Because obviously, there is sort of like this financial component where, you know, there's a high stake and de-risking everything and you know you get everybody that's you know playing this very high time preference game how does bitcoin change some of this stuff like for example you're independently wealthy now would you consider making you know a film that costs you like a decent bit of money but that you think it would be a really good film and hire the right people and so on oh yeah absolutely i think patronage of the arts, I think, will be a big thing in the coming years. Stephen Chow is a Bitcoiner who's on Twitter, who's already doing this on a micro level. And I know plans to do it on a more macro level as number goes up, right? Mm. So yeah, I think patronage is amazing. I think micro payments is amazing on Lightning, Mm. right? Like stuff Mm. like Sphinx Chat, like being able to actually pay for the small bits of content that you're watching. That's a total game changer, because now there's a direct financial incentive between you and the creator, right? And then I also think micropayments combined with more of a web three, you know, own your own, you know, content basically kind of thing where you're not being, you know, you're not a surf on Twitter's land. Maybe, you know, you, you have your own stake on whatever decentralized network or however it shakes out, right? And so you're not as easily able to be canceled because if there's a, you know, a bunch of people who like to see what you do, they're willing to pay for it why should you be canceled, right? Even if you said something maybe that was quote unquote uncouth or whatever, who's to decide? Like, let's let capitalism reign in the digital realm. And so, yeah, I am hopeful on uh, Bitcoin realigning some of these incentives. Mm. Yeah, I kind of wonder, like, if you do let sort of things kind of go free, I, I wonder if like, you'll get videos that are like, made from like 4chan people that go viral or something like that. Yeah. I, I honestly wonder. <laughs> No, I mean, as a content creator, I would love to, you know, the Kickstarter or Indiegogo vision of the future where maybe it's a little more like, you know, one of the problems with Kickstarter and Indiegogo is people were taking a lot of risk with their capital, but all they were getting in return was the product. And that doesn't work as well. And then we've seen ICOs, you know, people actually want equity. But then the problem with ICOs is that they're vaporware. Right? So, <laughs> you know, I think something that combines sort of that, you know, entrepreneurial spirit with the desire to crowdfund a product that people want to see. So not only do you get to see the project that you want made, but you get to own a piece of it because you're taking the risk with your capital. I think that's amazing. Like a story maybe a lot of people don't know is Life of Brian, the famous Monty Python film. George Harrison of Beatles fame mortgaged his house to get that movie made just because he had read the script and thought it was one of the greatest and funniest things he had ever read. And so he said, you know what? I believe in this so much. I'm going to mortgage my house and we're going to get the money to get this movie made. I think you'll see more stuff like that, like maybe on a both micro and macro level. So people who are independently wealthy, people who are rich, who can, you know, pick up the bill the, uh, for the entire project, a la George Harrison. And then, you know, a community of small backers who can come together, get little pieces of equity and see something that they're passionate about actually get made. 
Yeah. Also, how about like people just sort of saving, right? Like if you are a filmmaker, instead of trying to convince or like the Orson Welles quote that you gave earlier about like one year making your film and four years talking to financiers, instead like working four years, making enough money and then like going and making your film for a year and then, you know, going doing it that way. Like, doesn't that seem more real? every, Every filmmaker I know would want that. (laughs) would would want to be able to do it like literally every single one you know Mm -hmm. i mean this is what you know francis ford coppola who did the godfather you know he put up all of the money he made from the godfather in order to do apocalypse now and the only reason he was able to do that essentially and you know apocalypse now took five years and he almost died while he was making it and Mm -hmm. you know etc etc the studio tried to have him kicked off his own project all sorts of crazy stuff there's a great documentary called hearts of darkness Mm -hmm. about the making of that film that if you're interested in that sort of thing i'd check out Mm -hmm. but you know basically the only reason he was able to do that was because he was independently wealthy at the time and he had a distribution plan for that movie and he had the ability for people to buy tickets and then recoup the cost that he had spent on the movie You know, right now, it doesn't make sense for somebody to go out and make a movie and then put it out for free on YouTube and try and get some meager amount of ad revenue. Just doesn't make any sense, right? Like people got to be willing to buy the movie, buy a ticket. There might need to be some anti-piracy technologies that are created, you know, and we'll see, like, we'll see how it evolves. But I am hopeful that maybe we can fix it once there's more of a direct relationship. You know, just in general, like incorrect economic calculation is destroying the world in all sorts of ways that are unintended, you know. Mm. And so Mm. the more direct things are, I think the better things will be. Yeah. And it does feel like, you know, that's kind of achievable now. Like if you're saving in Bitcoin, and you work for five years, you know, being a showrunner or whatever, And, you know, at the end of it, you've saved in Bitcoin. Now you suddenly have enough money to go make a movie. Like, I don't think that was ever really possible before. Like, it seems like a relatively better way to go than trying to convince investors. No, totally. Plus, when you have investors, then you have a committee. Then you have people who want to see things, want to push you on the project, want the project to go certain ways. And if you're doing it just, you know, 100% self-financed, you can do whatever you want, which is great, you know, because you're taking all of the risk and you're hopefully getting all of the reward, right? Mm. Yeah. And that reward and risk calculation is what's kind of out of whack here. And that totally reminds me of like fiat money, you know, I've talked to Preston Fish on this podcast before and Plan B and many others who talk about how risk and reward are two sides of the same coin. Without great risk, there's no real great return. But the Fed has de-risked everything in the name of you know, trying to help people out that there's no return on anything. It seems like that's definitely true of art, especially film and other things where you know, nobody wants to take risks because, you know, they want a small return rather than lose, you know, big on one and maybe hit big on another. Yeah, totally. And it's a free rider problem, right? Mm. It's a tragedy of the commons thing. When you, when you have all these people who refuse to take risks, culturally, you end up going over a cliff, right? Or as an industry, you end up creating an industry that nobody wants to you know, like, for instance, the Oscars broadcast, nobody, no regular Americans don't actually want to watch that anymore. Mm. Because it's a bad product. Nobody wants to take any risk. They want to please everybody in existence, right? Another thing is, I think, like, our politicians are intent on telling us that, you know, basically hard work equals reward. And that's total bullshit. And it always has been risk is the only thing that equals reward, right? Mm. And 
the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that there's no bailouts in Bitcoin. If you incorrectly economically calculate via your Bitcoin, whether this is through malinvestment, whether this is through trusting the wrong third party for custodianship of your Bitcoin, whatever it is, doing your own self-custody incorrectly, whatever, if you incorrectly economically calculate, your Bitcoins go away from you and they don't come back to you unless you do something to make them come back, right? So I, I think this is a fundamentally fair system and that risk is part of life. We have to have risk. You can't de-risk the system. So, you know, these committees, these financial committees are always talking about de-risking everything. It can't be done. You know, all you're doing is creating this sort of system where black swans can propagate because you're creating so many blind spots and unknown unknowns. And, you know, you're likely to be blindsided when the risk shows up all at once because, you know, it's a fact of life. It's a matter of nature, really. Mm. And what you just spoke to about seems like it's also happening in the film industry. You're saying how like nobody really goes to the theater anymore. They seem to have hit this black swan with the pandemic. Like what's going to happen? Do you see this industry dying and maybe having a rebirth as something else? I think people will come back to the movies post pandemic. You know, they're going to stagger back to the movies slowly at first. And then there will be some huge movie that gets everybody back in line and people get back in the habit of going to the theater. And so and then from there, it'll, you know, realign with its trend of slowly declining. And <laughs> there will be less and less of these big movies. And, you know, like when's the last time we had like a cultural touchstone movie? You know, maybe it was Avatar was the mm. last time I remember everybody telling me to go see a movie. Mm. I, I can't remember what the last one was. I think it was probably 2009 with Avatar, right? So it's been a decade plus since we had one of these movies, you know? Wow, that's kind of scary to think about that. We're so like culturally bone dry of courage that like, you know, there's nothing that we can really remember <laughs> that's that yeah. impactful. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the feeling of watching a great movie is kind of like being, you know, picked up in your seat and transported someplace. And then when the credits roll, just being slammed back in your seat and saying, wow, like that was amazing. Like I really watched something that was affirming to the human spirit that really got my mind going that, you know, really like made me feel alive or made me feel like I had been transported to this new place and time or a different world or different set of circumstances. And that's an amazing feeling. You know, it's almost a religious experience to some degree, which is why uh, cinema has always had these sort of a religious level fanatics around it. You know, there's like sort of a church of cinema in some regards, right? Mm. And yeah, that experience is just, it's gone. And that's why I find myself not going to the movies as often anymore, because the movies have become so formulaic. Maybe I've just seen too many at this point also, but you know, I can tell you what's going to happen in a movie before it happens with pretty much every movie I watch, right? Mm. And so why am I watching it, essentially, is, is what I keep asking myself while the mm. movie is playing. You know, and there's yeah. only, a few, only a few directors like Tarantino, maybe Chris Nolan, who don't give you that feeling. Yeah, that's another thing that I read about a while ago that I think maybe you can speak a little more about is they basically have a screenplay formula. I think there's a book called like Save the Cat or something like that, where they tell you exactly what scenes you need in a movie and they tell you what order to do it based on like what the milieu is and like, you know, who the hero or heroine is and go from there. Well, and what's even crazier is, you know, that's been true for the last 25, 30 years, right? Oh, wow. 
it's been going on for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> Hollywood didn't used to make as many sequels, but they did used to make the same movie over and over again in different oh. forms. I mean, think about every 80s action movie. They were basically all the same movie. It didn't matter if Stallone or Schwarzenegger or Jean-Claude Van Damme was in the role. Mm. It was the same damn movie every single time. Right. <laughs> What's even crazier is nowadays I've seen some of the scripts that GPT-3 has written mm. and they're good. They're mm. indistinguishable from Hollywood boilerplate stuff. So now you can literally have AIs write scripts and then you can test these scripts with audiences and you can sift through to the one that's going to be, you know, the quote unquote most profitable. It's crazy. The world we're heading into is nuts. <laughs> that everything is just sort of formulaic and not much real innovation coming. That's what it sounds like. When it's also, you know, everybody thinks that they're going to be a great screenplay writer or like, I have a great, you know, whenever I tell people I'm a filmmaker or whatever, they go, I have, oh my God, I have a great idea for a movie. And it's really never been about the idea. It's really always been more about the execution of that idea. Can you execute on it? There are a lot of people with great ideas who have just no ability to execute, right? And I think we've seen just, you know, there aren't as many talented filmmakers anymore. And so the execution is at fundamentally lower level these days as well. What happened to those filmmakers? I like, I know there's a lot of talent somewhere, but like, are they not making movies anymore? What are they doing? No, you know, they're all working on lower level stuff or, you know, a lot of the generation just below me or, you know, me and just below me has ended up just doing content stuff on YouTube. And they're content with that because, you know, it's good money at the moment. Like it's better money than working in the film industry. The film industry is a boom bust, you know, sort of feast or famine mentality. There are a lot of people who you get on a movie and you get paid really, really well. You know, you get $750 a day if you're mm -hmm. high up in camera department, let's say. And that's a great day rate, especially you're working a three month movie or six month shoot, something like that. You're out on location. It's very fun, very exciting. The work is rewarding. And then you go, what happens is people in LA go back on unemployment in between shoots. <laughs> and so they pay into the SAG dues. And so they're in the union and then they get unemployment and then they'll be out of work for three, four, five, six months until they get the next movie. Right. And then sometimes you go movie to movie. Sometimes it's like a year between movies. You know, some of the big directors, for instance, like they get put in what's called movie jail. If you have a movie that was maybe like a critical darling, but a commercial sort of flop, you don't really get the ability to make a movie again for uh, for, you know, a while, because in Hollywood, you're only as good as your last film. And so, yeah, there's just all these perverse incentives all over the place. <laughs> wow. It does sound like money drives so much of it. All right. So looking forward, what, what do you think will happen to entertainment as a result of Bitcoin and many other things? Do you see it? changing? I mean, are you hoping that it changes? What, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I do hope it changes. I think we are probably going to move more into a, a VR, AR world at some point. I mean, people have been prognosticating about that for quite a while, but I don't know if you've tried any of the newest generation of VR headsets. Like, uh, the, Yeah, they're pretty, they're really pretty good now. The Oculus Quest 2 and stuff like that, but they're not very sticky. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, when you put one on, you can spend about an hour playing around with it and then you just have no desire to put it back on. I think once they solve that, we are going to see more VR, AR style content where it's more of an immersive experience because that sort of solves the problem of, 
you know, you're going to have to pay for it because it's on a closed system, one of these VR consoles, right? You're going to have the auteur experience where the director is going to be able to shape your vision because you're wearing the headset and you can't escape. And hopefully we see some more courage there because usually when there's a new domain, you know, we still see a lot of courage in video games. Uh, Video games still have some very interesting storylines that Hollywood does not because video games tend to have a a very young, very male audience who likes that kind of thing, right? Mm. Where, you know, if you're trying to make a video game for your Aunt Bethany, you might make a different style of video game, right? So (laughs) I think we're heading in that direction and that VR is probably the new movies, and movies will go away or they will be relegated to just being Netflix style long form television, essentially. And then I think that you'll see more of a direct relationship between content creators and consumers. And that'll take the shape of uh, micropayments, stuff like Sphinx chat, etc. So I do think the future is bright. We just got to get there. And we're not there right now. Mm, yeah. And maybe it'll raise up some really good you know, filmmakers, people that can really sort of give voice to, you know, some of the things that are that people are feeling. I really feel like that's been missing from art for a while is, you know, like art that really like gives voice to what I've been feeling for a while, right? Like I love that when I find a piece of art that really speaks to me or speaks basically what I wanted to say. It's so powerful, but, you know, especially in film, I just, I haven't seen anything. Yeah, that was always my superpower in my life was I know what other people are thinking before they say it, right? Mm. And so, you know, the dark side of that is me doing uh, corporate marketing, which is just so, you know, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to sell a product to somebody and I'm helping a corporation do it. And it's very soul sucking, but they pay me a lot of money in fiat. And then, the you know, the high level version of that is creating a piece of art. And, you know, there's this uh, famous, I think it's a Picasso quote which is that artists use lies to tell the truth. And art has always been a, uh, you know, a deep wellspring of sort of metaphorical and base level truth, right? Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes people say, you know, for instance, that, like, when they talk about the Bible, they would say the Bible is not literally true, right? But it's like, would you say the same thing of Hamlet? Would you say Hamlet is not literally true? You know, it's like, there is deep metaphorical truth and meaning to be found, in these important touchstones that we've had riding along humanity for a while. I mean, there's a reason that Shakespeare endures is because it speaks to something very profound in the human experience, you know? Mm. Well, that's a good note to sort of end it. Thank you for being on. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'll probably have a new account by the time you listen to this podcast. (laughs) But yeah, I'll be on there. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's currently American Hoddle 41. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> why, why is it not American Huddle 4? Because your previous one was American Huddle 3. You know what happened to me is people started, I was doing it sequentially and then people started squatting the accounts. So <laughs> it was like one, two, three, and then somebody squatted on four and then somebody squatted on five. So I had to leapfrog that. So now it's just random. It's just always random. <laughs> That's interesting. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I'll be on Twitter. You find me on Twitter or on Clubhouse. And you're also going to be at Bitcoin Miami 2021. That's right, because I got to buy you a steak. Yeah. So I have, I, to, I have to show up. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, flub your bet. You know, you can't no, flub your payment. No, you got to listen. Bitcoin Tina's got to buy his own steak, though. Okay, I'm just, <laughs> just going to say that right now. Uh, I'm same only, with I'm CJ only buying, and John. Yeah, yeah. I'm only buying Jimmy's steak, all right? Yeah. Everybody else has to fend for themselves. 
Yeah, I can't wait. And it's going to be amazing. And I really want to see what good Wagyu, like how it's cooked and all that stuff. So looking forward to it. But thanks for coming on. Beautiful. Thanks for having me, brother. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixing This. American Hoddle is unfortunately no longer on Twitter as he's been banned yet again. But you can find him on Clubhouse at at Hoddle. Until next time, Fiat Delinda Est.